welcome to the Sea Trade Maritime podcast. You're listening to Marcus Hand, editor of Sea Trade Maritime News. Today we are in conversation with Nick Clark, CEO of Greywing. Greywing is a Singapore-based startup specializing in automating crew change, and Nick was recently awarded as a future leader of the year at the Sea Trade Maritime Awards. Nick, welcome to the Sea Trade Maritime Podcast. Hi, Marcus. Good to see you, and um, I'm, I'm delighted to be on. A lot of stuff with Greywing. Started off with Sea Trade Maritime, and you know that was a couple of YouTube videos back in 2020. So um, I'm delighted to be uh, able to connect and catch up on what's happened since then. Yeah, no, it's great that you were able to take the time to talk to us and our listeners. And I'm going to start off if you could tell our listeners briefly about Greywing. Greywing is a digital platform, and we optimize anything that gets on or off a vessel. Right now, we're focused on crew changes, and basically what that means is we work for ship owner operators and ship managers. We plug into their voyage management system. We plug into their crewing software. We plug into their port agents and their travel agents, and we give them a single interface where they can plan and execute a crew change in as little as a minute. Digitization from a specific crew change perspective. I understand that this is a crew change solution, but... When I first met you a few years ago, I put back in 2019, Greywing was actually targeting maritime security provision, I remember. So can you explain how the company started out? Yeah, it's a really interesting question because we've come quite a long way and in a largely different direction to how we started. So I had a maritime security company that I started in 2011 and the market started to commoditize and I thought, well, you know, I should really try and get into the digital spaces. Those businesses seem to be doing much better. So I moved to Singapore. I attended a startup incubator called Entrepreneur First. And there I met my co-founder, Rishi Olikul, who's awesome on the technology side. And we thought to ourselves, well, why don't we build a maritime security platform that helps customers access maritime security resources in the Gulf of Guinea, around West Africa, and also in the Indian Ocean? And so we started off on that model. You know, We built this platform where you could source a maritime security team or a maritime security vessel. And as part of that, we also pulled in piracy intelligence. So you could plot the root of your vessel and understand, okay, where are the risk areas? You know, what are the latest piracy attacks being? So I suppose I was really looking at it from the perspective of my old business saying, okay, well, you know, this is a traditional business. You know, we're sending guys out, we're doing security, we're using telephone, email. How do we take that and pull it onto a digital platform? And uh, really, I suppose, kind of cannibalize that business model of security from that perspective. So we did that and we kind of got it to market. We got a, a few customers moving through it and, you know, it was kind of beginning to pick up. But then in February of 2020, I was calling round as I did, you know, on the sales side of things, talking to company security officers. And I spoke to this chap at Bernard Chilty and, you know, I said to him, I said, uh, we have a chat about the, the Gulf of Guinea and, you know, what they might have coming up. And uh, at the end of the call, I said, uh, you know, that classic sales question that they teach you, but you always forget. I said, are you guys uh, experiencing any, any other problems? And um, what this guy said was he said, well, actually, you know, the crew and team are really struggling to get people on and off vessels. You know, we've had people trapped on vessels for a certain period of time, and it's kind of a bit concerning, but we're hoping that it's all going to be sorted out and they'll be moving again by about April. 
that was pretty interesting, I think, from my perspective, because COVID was really just beginning to come into force. You know, when I traveled back from the UK earlier that year, I, I wore a mask on the flight. I was the only person. And then, you know, of course, a few months later, uh, everyone was wearing masks. And I had a chat to my co-founder about this, Rishi, and I said, you know, it's, it's a really odd thing because I cannot see this getting any better by April. And what does that mean if it doesn't? So we agreed, okay, well, why don't we, um, you know, we just keep doing his normal thing, but why don't I take uh, 48 hours or a couple of days and reach out to as many, um, you know, customers and their crew managers and people that we knew in the industry to speak to the crew managers to try and understand what was actually happening. And so I must have spoken to about 10 or 15 different crew managers at different organizations, got on the phone with them, and they all had the same problem. And the common theme was across the industry was that, They'd started to experience problems around crew changes in early December. They hadn't been able to change many of their crew, and crew changes were beginning to fail with aircraft getting turned around in midair or visas getting cancelled. And they were really struggling, but they had this sense that things were going to be better by April. So, you know, I went back to Rishi, had a sit down with him and said, well, this is what I'm hearing from the market. What do you think? And so we had another chat about it, and we thought, well, maybe there's something that we can do to help. You know, what Rishi did was he said, well, actually, you know, I can look at all of the port state restrictions around the world where we can actually, you know, pull that data in on where crew changes are possible and where they're not. And I could actually plug that into the platform so we could pull out the piracy intelligence. We could just put intelligence in the platform about where customers could do a crew change. So instead of plotting your vessel's route from Rotterdam to Lagos and showing you what the piracy threat was, you might be able to plot your vessel's route from Rotterdam through Suez to you know, Singapore or Hong Kong. And what we did was we gave customers the ability to see where along that route, in proximity to the vessel, could you do a crew change on the basis of port state and immigration restrictions. And I think that's when you and I you know, initially connected was when I was doing a bit of kind of PR, if you like, on LinkedIn, trying to you know, let the market know that we developed this very basic solution. You know, we sat down, we did that podcast, and uh, a little while after that, you know, one of the kind of top five ship management companies got in touch, and, you know, they were really interested. This was a big problem for them. It was just getting worse. I mean, the problem was quite bad when we initially started in February. But by the time we started talking to them in April, you know, it was it was really serious. Everyone was over-contracting. They're having all these cancelled crew changes. And so, you know, very quickly signed a contract. You know, I, I was looking at the data recently, and within a month, you know, they said, yes, we want this. We'll plug it in. Let's do it. And then we spoke to another quite large owner in Singapore. You know, they had a look at the platform. And they said, okay, well, all right, you, you can show us where you can do a crew change. You know, we can see what's happening there. But actually, you know, if I can see that the port state restrictions enable me to do a crew change, it's not of much value to me if I cannot see if there's any flight availability. We went away and we had a, another sit down, as you can imagine. And I, I think by this time, you know, we'd almost completely pivoted away from the maritime security model because this was such a clear and present need. And I think the way Rishi and I looked at it is it was, you know, in April, you know, it's really emerging as a critical problem within the maritime industry, but also globally with COVID. And I think by that time, we'd kind of come to that realization that, you know, if this is a global crisis, much better that we focus on trying to contribute to a solution here than in pushing along the business model we had before, because it's what people needed. Rishi went away, he looked into some data on flights, and what he realized was Amadeus, which is a global distribution system for flights, had the easiest ability to just go into their system and, and set up a sandbox account. 
you know, just one which would kind of let you get basic access to their data and, and then to turn it around and to test out what you could do with it. And I think it was quite far-sighted of them because they'd set up this account where, you know, basically you could just kind of get in and they gave you enough rope to hang yourself, if you like. So what Rishi was able to do was to say, okay, well, customers putting in the vessel's route, we're showing them where they can and can't do a crew change. And then now we can pull in what flights are available from Amadeus. And so that was fascinating because I think the original insight that we had was that if we replace the piracy intelligence with intelligence on where you could do a crew change, then we could give people options. But then the next iteration that we did with adding in flights was customer-driven. And then I think that's been pretty much the roadmap that we've had ever since then. All of the integrations that we've done with voyage management systems, you know, with crewing software, with board agents, and all of the other stakeholders in a crew change, including the manning agents, was driven by customer feedback. I think that's how we eventually kind of softly found out about this problem. And then we identified that we might be able to contribute. And then customers, you know, particularly crew managers, led the way on what they needed to solve the crew change problem for them. That's uh, quite a journey there. I really like the bit about the meeting back in December 2019, where you said you asked that sort of simple question at the end, you know, what other kind of issues do you have that need solving? I think something that's come through as you're talking there is this kind of trying to understand what the problems of the industry were at the time. And how important is it for startups in the maritime and other spheres, actually, to understand the industries they're going into and trying to solve situations for? It's a good question because I think a common inscription on the gravestones of startups is we built something no one wanted. <laughs> if we look at Y Combinator, the kind of Silicon Valley startup incubator, their tagline is build something people want. So we were incredibly lucky because when I came into the industry and set up a maritime security company, ships were being taken every other week. It was a critical problem and people were desperate for a solution. And so at the time, our company was the 19th company to be set up to solve this problem. So we were just repeating a business model that other people had established. But with COVID, we were lucky in the sense that we had a solution that was built for a different problem, which people kind of wanted, but they didn't desperately need it. They all had relationships. They all had people they'd been working with for five, 10 years. They knew the market. They knew how it worked. A digital platform might have been nice, but it wouldn't have been a much better experience than what they already had. Whereas from the COVID perspective, it was just such a clear and present danger to the crew and also to a certain extent to the companies, the, the maritime industry. I mean, I, I don't know if no-brainer is the best way to describe it, but we could just clearly look at this critical problem that needed solving. And luckily for us, we had a, a rough framework that we were able to repurpose in that direction. So, you know, I cannot really say whether we would still be in business if we'd have continued to focus, you know, the kind of platform to source maritime security. But one of the reasons that we were able to be successful and that we were able to establish ourselves in the industry is because we were able to find a real problem to solve. You know, COVID for everyone was a, was a clear problem. And I suppose the challenge for us has been in kind of mid-2021, I think the writing was on the wall that we were going to exit that kind of COVID environment and all of the risks and problems that it created. We could see that coming. And so we really had to think about what used to keep me up at night, if I'm honest, was what's growing in a post-COVID environment? 
in an environment where you no longer need technology to find a port of call to do a crew change because all of the ports are open, there's no longer any restrictions. What's the value proposition? You know, why are we here? And so we had to look very carefully at what we were doing for customers, the data that we were pulling in, and try to understand you know, how could we continue to build something that people wanted. And I think the key insight that we had was a financial one. If you've worked in the shipping industry for any length of time, you know that what drives ship operators on the whole, charterers and anyone else operating a vessel, is cost. It's keeping their OPEX down. It's optimizing on cost wherever they can. Most people that work as suppliers in the industry have lost uh, tenders on the basis of a couple of dollars, maybe a couple of hundred dollars difference, because that's how price sensitive the industry is. So when we looked at what we were doing, it became less about, okay, what's the best port of call to do a crew change given the restrictions? We started to think, well, what's the best port of call to do a crew change on the basis of price? Because there is this port arbitrage that ship operators can do, you know, particularly with a crew change. You know, do I do a crew change in Singapore, Suez, or Rotterdam? Given these next three ports of call, where's the most optimal place to do this? And the fascinating thing is, is that, you know, I speak to uh, a, a lot of people in the industry, particularly on the crewing side. And for a crew manager, it might take them a day and a half if they're working for a, a manager where they need to give the customer three options. You know, they've got to give the customer three options. The, the customer is usually going to pick the cheapest, but they try and go to the customer and say, look, these are your three options for crew change at these three different ports of call. We've done the cost analysis. This is what we'd recommend. But it's actually that exercise of having to go through and set up those other two options, which are never going to be used, which uh, takes up quite a lot of time. So we looked at that and we said, well, you know, there's a workflow here that's pretty manual. People are reaching out to agents using email, telephone. They're chasing uh, maybe a couple of different travel agents, a couple of different port agents, and they're doing this for three different ports of call, crew change. And it just didn't make sense that uh, this should all be manual because we had the data. You know, we could see that we could access the pricing data from the agents on how much it costs to do a crew change. Um, you know, we'd already plugged into the flight data, so we were pulling data from our customers, travel management companies, on the specific flights and the specific deals that they had with that, that company. And, you know, it just made sense to us that actually, why don't we just build an engine that can generate three quotations or however many quotations a customer needs across uh, however many ports of call that the vessel's going to be calling so that they can get to that crew change decision in a couple of minutes instead of a day and a half. So that's uh, the journey that we've gone on. You know, I think initially we gave them a good indication. You know, we gave them the indication about the agency pricing, the flight prices, you know, that was pretty good. But the fascinating thing is, is that, you know, as you talk to people who are normally at the, the kind of the top of the industry, they are hyper-focused, not just on what are the agency costs, what are the flight costs. They're thinking about, you know, how much uh, am I paying the crew? You know, how much are my hotel bills? What am I paying for food? What's the land travel going to cost me? Um, and so, you know, the platform's evolved on the basis of the feedback that we've received from industry so that, okay, we're looking at the agency costs, we're looking at the flight costs, but actually we're also looking at what the seafarers are being paid. We're looking at the uh, cost of accommodation, food, land travel, and we're pulling that all into a single calculation because, you know, I spoke to a, a vessel manager and he said a big problem he had with um, the crew operators in his company was that they would always book the cheapest flight. And they might book the cheapest flight and have a captain in a hotel 
getting paid his salary for three nights. And if they'd have just booked a more expensive ticket, then all right, they'd have booked a more expensive ticket, but they would have saved you know, potentially thousands of dollars on all of the additional costs. And no one was really doing this calculation. Again, you know, we're just led by solving the problems that crew operators and, you know, the customers that we work with have. So we pull that all into a single platform, a single calculation, and you can instantly see, okay, where's my best location to do a crew change on the basis of flights, agency, seafarer wages, accommodation, food, land travel, all of those items. And I think that's the level of accuracy that customers want. So that's uh, been pretty exciting because, again, we didn't know this. We'd have had this conversation maybe in, uh, I think, June. Then this wasn't a strong demand from industry. But when we released version two in June, we took it to market. We got some really clear feedback from you know some of the largest players in the industry that this is great, but you need to go further. And then they gave us the roadmap to get there. I think something that really seems to come through uh, as you're talking there is this kind of adaptability. You seem to have been able to go back to the start of COVID and then the changes, um, as you move forward, to adapt to your model to different needs as you move along. How difficult is it actually to do that? Because that's it's kind of constantly evolving your business, isn't it? Well, I mean, what I'll tell you is we raised some funds. And when we raised funds, I looked at the people we were going to hire. And to do that cash flow forecast, I took the median salary for developers working in Silicon Valley, and I put it into our cash flow forecast. And when we went to investors uh, in Silicon Valley, they were completely cool with it. They were like, yeah, if you want good talent, that's what it's going to cost. Bear in mind, we've only got six people in the engineering team. But the way that we looked at it was we said, you, you can't build technology that's going to change an industry if you aren't willing to invest in it up front. And I took this cash flow forecast. There was a couple of maritime-specific investors that I gave it to. They said, well, you're paying too much. You know, you can't pay people this amount of money. I mean, I, I certainly wouldn't invest in a company where the salaries are this high. And I explained to them, I said, well, you know, we're trying to come into this industry and, you know, we're trying to do something that's never been done before. And the upside is this. We have to bring a good team in. And, you know, if we can't bring in good developers, we're not going to be able to build software that's going to change the industry. It's just not going to be possible. And, you know, they were really resistant to it. We're kind of suggesting we pay people 60% of what we were budgeting. And in the end, they didn't invest. And, you know, there's this concept, I forget what it is, but they ran an experiment in terms of how much developers can produce. Now, if you've got people working in the office, you might have Bob and Sue doing their respective jobs, whatever they are. And Sue might be 20% better than Bob because she's just more professional, more highly motivated. She gets more stuff done. She's turning up to work early. She's extremely efficient. You know, that, that's the kind of uh, impact that a more highly motivated, maybe more highly trained person can have. But within software development, the difference is exponential. And so they ran a test, I think, uh, somewhere in, in the US where they pulled in, um, you know, I think it was around 20 to 40 developers, and they gave them a, a similar level task for them to do with a, a similar level of complexity. And what they found was that the best developer was, I think, it was 20 or 30 times more effective than the average. And so when we went to market and when we started setting up the team, we thought very carefully about the people that we were hiring, particularly on the technical front, 
Because if you hire people that aren't going to have that impact, then you're not losing the 20% that you might do with a traditional hire. You're potentially, if you hire someone average as opposed to someone exceptional, you could end up with 5% of the output if you're able to recruit someone that's truly talented. And I think, you know, one of the things was, is when we went through Y Combinator, we were just, I think, three people at the time. And a lot of companies in Y Combinator were 10, 20, 30 people. They had all this money. They'd hired all these people. And when we came out of Y Combinator, we said, okay, we want to hire as slowly as possible, but we want to make sure that we get the right people. So we went through this like really long, painful process of, of interviewing and, and selecting and, and filtering through the, the people that we were able to, to meet. And it took us almost a year, I think, to, to hire all the developers. And bear in mind, you know, there's only six people. You know, so we're hiring one person every two months. But what I can say is people that we've bought on, we've found those 20x people. You know, we've found the people that can really turn around and, and deliver many times more than what someone on that average baseline would have done. And if we were paying average salaries, we would be building average technology. So, you know, when you talk about our ability to be adaptable and to continue to release and to continue to change and to respond to customer demands, that is almost solely driven by the, uh, the people that we've been able to bring into the business. You know, just as an indication, uh, every Wednesday, uh, we update the product and we send out new releases. And so every Wednesday, we have a change log, new releases, new products, new tools come out, and it's a consistent delivery of client demand. We need that feedback and that collaboration with customers. So typically what we do with customers is about once a month, you know, where they would like us to. We sit in on their crewing meetings to try and understand better exactly what problems they're dealing with, what they like about the software, what they don't like, so we can continue to pull out that information about really what we should should build next. I was at Crew Connect in Manila just last week, and when we give our product to a customer, their, their manning agents use it as well. And uh, one of the manning agents was telling me, he was saying, you know, what you should really tell customers is that the difference between working with Greywing and working with, uh, you know, other, other software vendors is the collaborative nature of, of the relationship. You know, it's the level of communication that we have with you and your team. And you're not always able to solve the problems that we give you, but we always feel heard. You know, we always feel like you've taken that into account and where you're able to, you're, you're optimizing or, or solving the problem. And I think I can't emphasize this enough that one of the reasons that we've been able to build a product that's compelling is because of the feedback that we've pulled in from, from customers. You know, and so that's how we look at that collaboration. All right, we've, we've built a brilliant team and we're able to build great, you know, great technology, but we can't build that technology in a vacuum. And that's why our customer relationships, you know, our customer success manager, the time and effort that we put into building those relationships and, and staying in the loop with what's happening with them on a day-to-day -day basis uh, feeds directly back into our product roadmap. Some very interesting statistics that you gave about the software developers and the differences in what you get in terms of a, a high quality developer and an average one. I was going to ask you what the plans are next, but I get the feeling you possibly don't know yet. Oh, that's a good question. Right now, Greywing is the market leading only platform for crew changes to optimize and execute a crew change within 60 seconds, if you so wish. But actually, we've just signed a contract with a customer that we'll be announcing next year. 
And what they've asked us to do is to apply our experience and understanding of crewing to crew matrix planning. So what they're looking at is they're a chemical tanker operator. They have uh, many different nationalities of crew. And because it's a chemical tanker operation, their vessels always need to be in compliance with all of the oil major requirements for crew matrix planning and experience. And, you know, as well as OCIMF, flag state and, uh, and class. And what we've done with them is we've gone through an exercise of understanding exactly how it is that they plan their crew up from a crew perspective. And they really struggle because they've got a, a lot of, you know, highly paid people who are, you know, many years experience who are always doing this crew planning. And one of the big problems they have, which of course any operator is going to have, is, you know, you pull someone out of the matrix because unexpectedly they had to sign off because they were ill or maybe they've left and gone to another company. Now you're left with, okay, now I need to go back and, you know, because this person stepped out, I need, now I need to replan, you know, my entire crew planning, you know, for the next six months, 12 months. So the uh, contract we have with them is to automate and digitize crew planning for the next 12 months uh, accurately and for the next three years with a, a lower level of accuracy because some of the nationalities that they use come from countries with strong unions and they have to be able to see a career progression for someone in, in a couple of years. Now, this is really interesting because the way that we're looking at it is, you know, if we're looking three years ahead and we can see actually someone's coming up to retirement, maybe a, a master or chief engineer, for example, then the reason we need to look three years ahead is to say, okay, well, if, if this guy's, you know, certainly going to be stepping up the company in three years' time, then actually we need to pull back the planning to today's date to start looking at how we're going to promote through the ranks to fill up that position so that we've got people literally moving through from you know the cadets at the bottom and then up into the you know junior and then senior officers so that once that master or chief engineer steps out someone's ready and trained and able to step into their place and the coolest thing about this i love that the client asked us to do this because it's something that i really wasn't expecting was they said look you know would it be possible for you to build crew planning software from a crew matrix planning perspective that can not only you know, stay in compliance with OCIMF and oil majors, but if there's a way that we can optimize for people being at home for family birthdays that, or dates that are important to them, can you build that in as well? <laughs> we like a challenge. So we said, sure, why, why not? So I think one of the reasons why I'm really excited about this project is okay, crew matrix planning, that's got to be done. It's not sexy, but uh, it's honest, honest work. But the idea that we could build an algorithm that would be adopted by this company and, and hopefully by the industry at large, not only enhances their ability to stay compliant with oil major requirements and to always ensure that they're open for business and they you know, never lose a charter because they've been unable to, uh, to meet their crew matrix planning requirements, but also to make sure that you know their crew get home for those important dates with their loved ones is something I'm really excited about. You know, I think that's uh, it, it's nice to have have a business. It's it's nice to sell a product, but if you can do something that's going to have a positive impact on seafarers' lives at no cost to the company and still delivering that optimization they're looking for, you know, that's something that's really cool. And you know, all right, we we get out of bed for the paycheck, but. You know, this is one of the reasons why, you know, at Greywing, we're, we're also excited to get to work. Sounds like a fantastic development. And it sounds like your software developers are going to be quite busy. Just to kind of wrap this up, I'm going to come back to what was the start, really, and your own background. 
you know, you said you were in maritime security and you're a military veteran. You're not the only military veteran I know who's experiencing some reasonable success in the, the sort of maritime startup space. Is there sort of some, you know, something about this type of background that works well in the startup arena? It's hard to reflect on one's own experience objectively. It's hard to say. I think coming from a military background, I think certainly gives you the ability to turn it on when you need to. You know, I see plenty of talented, smart, intelligent, highly motivated people, more so than I am, who come from a non-military background. So I think I, you know, can't solely say that, you know, that's, uh, that, that's, that's the driver. You know, the greatest advantage, I think, being in the military uh, has, has given me is that uh, nothing will be as challenging or as difficult as, uh, you know, some of the time that I spent in the military. And, you know, I will always be grateful to get up, go to work, uh, have both my legs and to be alive. So, you know, certainly when you're experiencing those uh, more challenging times, uh, which I think every startup does, and normally, you know, <laughs> for a startup, you know, startup uh, death is, is, is often not far away. Uh, luckily for us, it's, it's a bit further away now. But yeah, I mean, you know, what is it? You know, I've got to get up, got to go meet some clients, you know, got to uh, get on the phone, call up some prospects. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's all a luxury, whereas uh, it wasn't always looking that way. I think the other thing about the military was one of the things that I, I love about a startup, and I don't think this makes me more suitable, is, you know, coming from an organization that's um, hierarchical and bureaucratic is the freedom of movement and execution that you have within a startup. You know, I'd say that I wasn't often a great military soldier. You know, I was driven by uh, ego and performance and, you know, thinking what was best for me. And I think it uh, it was actually maybe a little time after I left the military that I learned to become a team player. So, you know, but I think some of those qualities that maybe, you know, meant that I, you know, wasn't a uh, as, as good a soldier as I could have been, have been extremely useful in the startup space. You know, the ability to innovate by yourself, the ability to think outside the box. And, uh, you know, to be honest, you know, these skills aren't always required in the military. Certainly, you know, the much more junior rank that I was at, you need someone who's going to comply. You need someone that's going to do what they're told and you need someone that's going to always be a team player. So I have to be honest. I mean, I'm kind of going off on a bit of a tangent here, but um, I think coming out of the military, definitely gave me the ability to move forward, see an objective and to continue on and persevere in the face of adversity without doubt, you know, gave me a sense of humor, you know, the ability to be relentless in the pursuit of an objective. But I have to say, you know, any kind of level of, you know, humility, I think has just been built through repeated failure and in just, you know, startup life, because I think Winston Churchill said that success is progressing from one failure to another with no loss of enthusiasm. <laughs> that is, you know, basically what a startup is, you know, for a while. So uh, I think that's uh, maybe not, not the answer you were looking for, but, you know, I'll finish on this. The military and my time in there is so ingrained into my character that I'm unable to see the upsides because I live with those upsides every day, you know, and I'm extremely lucky to have them and I wouldn't change anything about my experience. But it's, it's hard to look at myself and kind of reverse engineer what the military gave me, which... Um, you know, has now almost become an ingrained part of my character, which I'm, you know, unable to differentiate from the, the rest of Nick. 
I appreciate you attempting to actually look at yourself like that and uh, explain to our listeners how that comes together. And I will say your enthusiasm definitely comes through. I'd just like to thank you so much for coming on the Sea Trade Maritime Podcast, Nick. Thank you, Marcus. And thank you for helping us get our message out to market, you know, back in 2020. You know, the CEO of a, a ship management company saw that and, uh, you know, that got us a contract. So, all right, you know, startups are out there. They're doing the work. You know, they're innovating in the shadows. But if it's not for publications like Sea Trade Maritime picking up on this and giving them that daylight that they need to get in front of customers, then um, we might not even be here today. So I'm very grateful. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, thanks, Nick. Thanks, Nick.